For those of you who don't know me, my name's Essa. Uh, my wife and I have the privilege of visiting uh, last week and this week. On the right, uh, you'll see our four children. I won't uh, try and give you their ages, but three of those have left home and the youngest, Jeremiah, is uh, still with us. There's no point dropping hints about being you know, empty nesters and enjoying that freedom because he's not here to hear that anyway. So... <laughs> But uh, so four children, three of our own, one adopted, and on the left are Aidan and his girlfriend Chloe. Our prediction, without claiming to be prophets, uh, is that by the end of the year they'll at least uh, be seriously talking about engagement. Uh, Sarah, uh, our eldest girl, uh, eldest child until we adopted one, uh, got married I think three weekends ago and uh, is now happily living with Ben. Uh, So... And Jeremiah is at home and, again, we uh, are praying that he'll find someone special in his life. I've been in the ministry for 20-plus years, uh, preaching and serving mainly in the Presbyterian Church, 11 of those years here in Toowoomba. I'm currently studying a PhD at Brisbane School of Theology, but also working as a, or studying to be a Christian coach with the Christian Coaching Institute. Uh, I'm also working part-time or in my spare time as a Christian life coach running individual uh, coaching sessions, marriage coaching sessions, uh, marriage coaching weekends, helping people to grow in spiritual formation in their business, in their work life, in their personal life, in whatever area it might be. So, So a shameless plug. If you're looking at bringing out your best and and growing yourself, whether it's in marriage, in relationship, in family, as a mum, as a dad, as a parent, in your workplace, come and see me afterwards and we can talk through that. But my goal is not to pick up coaching clients. My goal is to open the word together in Isaiah 61. I was working through this passage probably about six, seven, eight weeks ago in my quiet time. I don't know why we call it a quiet time, because sometimes I sing, sometimes I dance, sometimes I yell and scream, sometimes I cry. It's not very quiet. And with my time with God, uh, this passage just opened up afresh with a rich depth that I'd never seen. So I hope to share that with you. Can I pray? And then we'll look at this beautiful passage in Isaiah 61. Let's pray. Father, you are a great and awesome God. You are a compassionate God who loves to bring salvation and joy to people. Father, as we open up Isaiah 61, give us a fresh understanding of the good news of Christ. Help us, Lord, not to see a shallowness in the gospel, but to see the many splendid colours of the gospel, to see the depth of your love for us, to see the power of the gospel and to be zealous in taking it to the ends of the earth. Father, it's in Christ we pray. Amen. Now, this is a true story, not a fishing story. And you know the fishing stories. A fish that started off weighing one kilo grows and grows and grows, and after five or ten years, it's so big, the photo weighs a kilogram, not just the fish. This is a true story, not a fishing story. And I want to ask you what you would do in that situation. Put yourself in my shoes and work out what you would say, what you would do in this situation. I was working as an employment consultant for a Christian company in southwest of Sydney. My job was to reskill adults. 
to retrain them and to place them in either full-time employment or some kind of further training program. Most of my clients, 99% were ex-offenders. They would get out of jail and they would effectively come over to our office and seek to to reskill and retrain to get their life back on track. Now, one particular client I had, a male client comes into my office. I had his file, so I read through the file. He'd been uh, incarcerated for 13 years, I think. I think that's an underestimate. It might have been more like 15 or 18, uh, but for assault assault and battery, aggravated assault. He'd actually beat the living daylights out of someone uh, for something rather minor. Now, this guy came into my office, uh, long, unkept hair. My first thought is, have you actually washed your hair in 13 years or have you just let it sit there? He had missing teeth, probably from altercations uh, that he was involved in. He he had tattoos up his arm and, and over his face. And if you know something about tattoos, particular tattoos on regions of your face mean particular things. He had the one that said he had killed people in fights and he had the one that said he'd lost people in fights uh, that uh, were closely related to him. On on each of his knuckles, he had particular profanities uh, tattooed and his physique was more like Mr Universe than Mr. Puniverse. So he wasn't, he wasn't like me. He was big, built and solid and he looked like a brick uh, that could easily turn on you. His personality was not like Dr. Jekyll, meek and mild and quiet. He was more like Mr. Hyde, loud, obnoxious and aggressive. And here's this guy, comes into my office. Now, what would you do in this situation? He sits in my chair, not, not the, the chair I had for clients, the uncomfortable chair. He, he sat in my chair at my desk, leant back with his hands behind his, his head and he said, why does God hate me? What would you say? What would you do? Would you share the gospel, the good news with this fellow? Would you put yourself in the danger zone and open up? And what would you say if you did share the gospel? What words would you use? See, I've had this challenge in my life probably since then, but but even more so intensely over the last five or six years. I got to the point about five or six years ago where I'm sharing the gospel with lots of people. And 90% of these people are just shrugging their shoulders and saying, yeah, whatever, big deal. And I'm wondering, how good is the good news that I share with people? We need to think about that individually, and we need to think about that corporately. How good is the good news we share as a church? How good is the good news we take out into the highways and the byways to share with people? How good is the good news that we share? What's so great about that good news. And could I share with this fellow in my chair, not not the client's chair in my chair, defiantly sitting there, could I share the good news with him? And could I anticipate great things from God? What would you do in that situation? I'll just try and get the slides up to date. So how good is... The good news. 
And that's where we come to Isaiah 61. And you see, I could say something trite to this fellow, and I, I think my life would have been in danger if I had to said something like, Jesus loves you. That's true, but it's rather shallow. Because he could say, really, I can't see it. He'd had a horrible life. He'd been abused. Uh, he'd been in violent situations. He'd grown up in misery. I could say, hey, Jesus died for you. And he would probably say something like, well, I wish he'd lived and I died. I could say something like, Jesus can save you. Again, these are all true. Jesus can save you. And he would have said, why would he save me? What would he save me from? See, how good is the good news. Let's put Isaiah in context. In chapter 61, we're almost at the end of this 8th century prophet. The book of Isaiah has two big sections and two major sections. If you get a chance and you've got a couple of days, read through Isaiah in one go. And as you get to 39, you move into 40, you'll see a huge change in the tone. Chapters 1 to 39 are about judgment. They're, they're largely negative but as you read, every now and then you see hints of grace, hints of God's love shining through. And so you turn into chapter 40 and everything changes. The whole tone of the book begins to lighten and lift up. And chapters 40 through 66 are largely grace and love with hints of judgment. And so they almost flip over. And of course, in this second half of the book, there are four servant songs, four uh, servant of Yahweh, servant of the Lord passages that define what this individual person, he's called the servant, and what he does in terms of salvation, how he brings the salvation of God, of Yahweh, to the people of God. Now, again, if you get a chance, read these servant songs, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapter 52 through 53. And as we come down to chapter 61, the key issue is righteousness. And this righteousness doesn't just sort of explode on the scene. It's actually been building for quite some time. And you, you read in chapter 56, for example, this is what Yahweh says, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. And so you think about this structure in Isaiah 40 to 66. Chapter 56 starts with do right, be just. The rest of 56 all the way through to 59 is effectively God showing us that we can't do that. God's people can't be right and just in themselves. They can't procure the standard that God demands from his people. And so in chapter 60, God effectively says, I'll make you right. I'll do the work of making you right. And chapter 61 is how God does that. Chapter 62 continues that theme, and chapter 63 is about the judgment of God. And so we start in this chapter coming to realise that it's not just good news, it's the best news. It's not just good news, it's the best news. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. 
You think about those servant songs, the servant of Yahweh passages. You look at 42 verse 1 and there's this spirit parallel. The spirit is on the servant. The spirit is on this one here. And so we assume that it's the, it's the, the servant of Yahweh speaking here. So it's the same figure in all those four servant songs speaking here, but it's also Messiah. And we say that for several reasons. You notice the verse says, because Yahweh has anointed me. The, he, the word we have, Messiah, comes from the Hebrew, Mashiach, which is the word used there in the highlighted blue, which is anointed. Yahweh has messiahed me. He has anointed me. And of course, Jesus quotes this. Jesus takes this passage and says, hey, I fulfill that. And so if Jesus says, I am Messiah doing this work, who am I? Who are we to say, well, hang on. I don't think it's Messiah here talking. I think it's someone else. No, no. Jesus has claimed this passage and we simply allow him to be the Messiah of Isaiah 61. And he quotes it in 421. And he began by saying to them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And this is where we start digging deep to understand what's so good about the good news. First and foremost, we see the Trinitarian God. Messiah brings not just good news, but the best news. And, and I hope you understand that it's somewhat shallow, even though it's true, to say Jesus loves you because God the Father loves you, God the Son loves you, and indeed God the Holy Spirit loves you. The Trinitarian God loves you. The Trinitarian God is involved in your salvation. It's not like God sits idly in heaven as Jesus does his work on the earth. It's not like God the Holy Spirit is just sort of brooding around and biding his time and wondering what to do as Jesus spends 33 years living in this world. No, no. The Trinitarian God is involved in your salvation. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The Son, Messiah, is the one who comes to save us. He's the one that is the me in that verse. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. That's the Son. He's the one the Lord has anointed the me in that anointing. The son comes to do the father's work, to die on the cross, to be raised to eternal life, to deal with our sins. But it's the father who gives the spirit. It's the father who anoints the son with the Holy Spirit. And so we read the spirit of Adonai Yahweh, the, the sovereign Lord is on me, the son, because Yahweh has done that anointing. So the father's involved and surprise, surprise, the Holy Spirit is involved. That's the spirit of the sovereign law that comes from the Father. It's the anointing that the Son has. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in your salvation. The Trinitarian God loves you. And the Trinitarian God is involved in your salvation. And the Trinitarian God brings good news. 
That's the work of the Son in this earth, but also the work of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So how good is that good news? I've put verse 1, a part of verse 2, and verse 3 on the screen for you. And what I think is happening, I'll explain why in a moment, that phrase in blue, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, is exegeted or expanded by everything that follows. And so you have, it's almost like when light passes through glass or through water droplets, it it breaks out into all its many splendid colours. Isaiah writes, I've, I've... you know, the, the anointed one has come to bring good news and then it breaks out, it, it refracts into all the beautiful colours of the gospel and they're listed there. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from the darkness for, for prisoners, to comfort all those who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of Yahweh for the display of his glory. Now let me ask you to do something. I'll put that screen back up in a moment. Can you count how many things the Son is sent to do? See if you can count them. When you get a number, yell it out. Eight, okay, yep. Ten. One. One. I like it. Preach the good news, one thing. That's, that's 100% right. Let's have a look, see if we can break it down. So, so the, the sun comes to preach the good news. You, you start digging in and you see the beauty, the many splendid colours of the gospel. He comes to bind up the brokenhearted. Not bind as in, you know, you rob a bank and you tie everyone up and, and steal their money. No, as in broken limb, put a splint on it and let it heal and be safe. So binding up the heart so there can be healing, proclaiming freedom, declaring that prisoners are free, releasing those prisoners from the dungeon, proclaiming the year of God's favour, comforting all who mourn, providing for those who grieve, bestowing a crown of beauty, pouring the oil of gladness over those who are in a negative situation, putting on garments of praise and giving them a new name, oaks of righteousness. We'll look at that later on, instead of being called prisoners or or those in darkness. So 10 things at least the sun comes to do. And if you think about it, you say to someone, Jesus loves you. They might say, oh, well, we'll be due. But if you start talking about healing their broken heart, if you start telling them that they can be freed from their prison, whether it's the, the prison of drugs or alcohol or abuse or whatever it is, they can come out of the dungeon. Talk about comforting them rather than a trite statement. Giving them the oil of, gar- of gladness, the garments of praise, and saying you don't have to identify with sin, but you can have a new name that is blessed and based on righteousness. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Think about the poor in Toowoomba. 
Go around the parks in the night and you'll see there are homeless everywhere. There are people couch surfing because they have nowhere to live. We have a very high rate of drug dependence and alcohol addiction. We have people enslaved in various vices and ills. We have those who should have been loved but are actually abused. Children, spouses who need love and instead get abuse. There are those people who know something's desperately wrong. They know something's not right and they have no idea where to look for the answer. They have no idea how to find the truth. And of course there are those held captive by their sinful passions. They live a life during the day just like you and I, but at uh, times when they're not seen, they are tied and bound by their passions. They need the good news. But Isaiah's probably talking more about the spiritually poor. You think about, that includes all of those people we've just mentioned, but it also includes your friends who might be lovely people but who deny Christ. They are spiritually bankrupt. It includes your family who continue to reject Messiah. They are spiritually poor. It includes your work colleagues, your your fellow students, people around you who continue to think they're good enough. She'll be right, mate. I'm okay. I've never been a bad person. They are spiritually bankrupt before the Lord. And Messiah comes bringing good news for them. And part of that good news, that that great news, the best news, is this whole issue of vengeance and favour in verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Now this is the part Jesus quoted in Luke chapter 4. But did you notice he actually stopped before he got to verse 2b, that, that second part? Have a look. This is from Luke's Gospel. This is what Jesus says. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and so so he opens up uh, the Isaiah scroll that's about a 33 foot long scroll finds the parts there's no numbers there's no chapter headings or anything like that he finds the part where this is written reads it out but notice in Isaiah 61 it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and why does Jesus omit the vengeance part why does Jesus just stop and not read the vengeance. The background is in the year of the Lord's favour. To understand what's going on, you need to understand this whole concept of the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25, uh, verse 7 and following. In Israel, every seven years, the land was not farmed. It It was actually going into a rest mode. And so for the whole year, you would basically eat whatever came up by itself. You would trust God and not farm the land and just eat the produce as it came up. The land is taking a sabbatical. Now, every seven sets of seven years, every seven sabbaticals, after that, the 50th year was a year of jubilee, a great time of celebration, but also spiritually quite revealing in this year of jubilee all land was returned to the original owners so if you were farming someone else's land it would go back to the owner if you had purchased land it would go back to the original owner now all debts were cancelled in that year isn't that a great thing all debts were cancelled all slaves were set free and given pardon 
completely. And of course, everyone was given a new start. Now, this was a practical and an economic kind of thing, but think about it spiritually. Think about debts being cancelled spiritually. Think about slaves being set free spiritually. Think about giving a new start to someone spiritually. And so it's not just good news, but the best news. And imagine my friend sitting in my chair, not the client's chair, but my chair. Think about him sitting there. I can tell him that Christ can set him free from his slavery to sin. He doesn't have to be bound by that sinful desire in his heart. I can tell him that his debt to God can be cancelled and wiped completely clean so that he and God through Christ, can be on good, right, solid terms. I can tell him that he can have a new start, completely fresh, without the hurt, without the judgment, without the hatred, without the pain, without the self-loathing, without the negativity, without the violence, without that deep-seated anger in his heart. And so we have this verse back in Isaiah 61. So why does Jesus not quote the part about the vengeance? Why does he stop? I think it's something to do with John 3.17 and this is bridging that gap between those two parts. Now we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now we don't know John 3.17 all that well, but for God did not send his son Jesus didn't come into the world the first time to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I think that's what the Isaiah prophecy is picking up on. And that's what Jesus is picking up on as he avoids that last part. Think about the coming of Christ. He comes, he dies on the cross, he's raised to eternal life. Christ will come for a second and final time at some point and judge the living and the dead. At that point, those who reject Jesus will be sent to eternal condemnation. But in the middle, the now, we have a space of grace, a time where people can actually turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and turn away the wrath of God from themselves. And so this gap is primarily about salvation from the coming judgment. You think about the Bible. Throughout the whole Old and New Testament, salvation is always tied to judgment. You have to be saved from something. If people don't know they're being saved from something, then they'll have that kind of whoopee-doo, who cares kind of attitude. If God's come to just give me something that's undefined, why would I want it? My life is pretty good. I'm living a nice, comfy, easy life. Why would I want something that has no bones or no flesh to it? So salvation is always tied to judgment. You think about Noah. He was saved from the flood. What's the flood? God's judgment on the world. Lot was saved from the fiery rain over Sodom and Gomorrah. God's judgment. Rahab in Jericho was saved from the marauding Israelites. What were they executing? God's judgment. And again, you think about um, that whole concept. It's not that I can say to my friend, you are just salvation from slavery, from addiction, from ourselves, from meaninglessness and having no purpose in life. When you turn to Christ, 
You are saved from God's judgment, God's wrath, God's eternal condemnation for rejecting his son, Christ Jesus. Now put those three things together, the Trinitarian God's love, the good news that this Trinitarian God brings, the vengeance and favour of God, add them all up. And of course, what do you get? You get a new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who comes to Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And then we get verse 3 in Isaiah 61, right at the end, have a look at what these people who come into salvation are called. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of Yahweh for the display of his splendor. Now, being a a city boy who used to think that uh, steaks and chickens and eggs all came from aisle seven at Coles, I went and Googled what an oak tree is. I've heard of an oak tree, but I had no idea. Can you see towards the right down the bottom, that's a human couple there. Look how big the oak tree is. You see what God is saying? In Christ, in his salvation, you will be called an oak of righteousness, a strong, solid grand display of God's righteousness. You will bear much fruit and you will affect those around you. And so God pictures his people not as little saplings, not as weeds growing in a garden, but as oaks of righteousness, strong, secure, and deeply rooted in the salvation that God gives us. When you receive the love of the Trinitarian God, you receive his favour, you you put aside his vengeance and you receive a new identity in Christ. Now you ask yourself, how does all this happen? How do we come into this salvation, this good news? Well, it's, it's actually through covenant, but it's not a covenant, it's actually a new covenant a blessed covenant. And if you look at verse 4 and 5, this covenant is pictured in terms of salvation being a return to Jerusalem. In verses 6 to 8, it's looked at from the relational aspect, and that's the aspect I want to dig deeper into. If you want relationship with God, search from, from Genesis to Revelation. It is always through covenant. You cannot be in a relationship with God without a covenant, without being a covenant member. And so we have not just a covenant, but we have a new covenant. And you, verse 6, and you will be called priests of Yahweh. You'll be named ministers of our God. Remember that verse. We're going to look at that briefly. You will feed on the wealth of the nations and in their riches you'll boast. Instead of their shame, my people receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I'll reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. God will call his people priests. Now, it's, it's sad that a lot of scholars will say a priest has simply access to God, and that's all, that's all it means. I think it means far, far more than that. 
when God drew his people out of Egypt, when he sent the ten plagues on Egypt, drew his people out, brought them to Mount Sinai, he covenanted with them and he made them priests. Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God says to Moses and through Moses to the people, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. That's what Isaiah 61 is picking up on. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, if you've got a nation of priests, who are they priesting to? Is it like a a bless me club where you just sort of bless each other and forget the rest of the world? I, I, I don't think so. I think it's this nation is to mediate between God and indeed the whole world. Their job was to take the love of God out to the world and bring the world into God's love. Now, interestingly, you say, did the nation actually do that? Did they succeed? Isaiah 26, 18, I think, is a foundational verse to understanding the role of Israel in that sense. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. See what he says? We have not brought salvation to the earth. We haven't been the priests you wanted. We haven't mediated between God and the world. We have not given birth to the people of the world. And so Isaiah confesses on behalf of the nation. We haven't been the priests that you desired to bring salvation to the world. And here's where the good news is not just good news. Let's have a three-minute break for me to try and put this together. You'll find out my technical expertise is on par with... Let's see if it works. Oh, it still works too. Hallelujah. Thank God for that. This is where the good news becomes the best news. As you turn to to Christ in repentance and and faith, you actually become a part of this prophesied priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 picks up on this very clearly. But you, talking to the church, are a chosen people. See that word there? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so, so as a priest, you have this job of declaring praises. Now, again, do we sit in a holy huddle, a little bless me club, and declare praises to each other? Well, well we do. But if that's all we do, we become like Israel. And we fail to have the mission completed. Our job is to declare the praises of God to the unbelieving world and to show them how great our God is so they come in and find salvation in Christ. Think of Mark chapter 5 where that demoniac was healed. This, this guy was possessed by, by a huge number of demons. He's wild, he's running around the tombs butt naked, he's chained, he breaks the chains. Nobody wants him. They, they keep him in the, in the cemetery. They, they try and chain him. They can't chain him. He's an isolate. He's a destructive isolate who hates everybody and everything. Jesus comes along, and what do we find? He's healed, he's dressed, he's in his right mind, and he pleads to go with Jesus. Look what Jesus says. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has, has had mercy on 
you. Even a demoniac, a man possessed by a couple of thousand demons, joins in that priesthood and is being given the job of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Go tell your family how much the Lord has done for you. And off he goes to share the good news with his family. As God covenants with people, he promises them everlasting joy. Everlasting joy will be theirs. How does that happen? How can God promise everlasting joy? Well, in verse 8, we see the answer. I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Now, that should cause you some consternation. You should be scratching your head and saying, how is it possible? How is it possible that a holy God can reward a sinful people and make a covenant with them? How can an unholy people be blessed and come into relationship with a holy God? Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us, but Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 does. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus did not enter, Now we're talking about the most holy place. Just quick summary of the temple. You had the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Israelites, and in the temple proper, you had the holy place where the priests would go. There was the, the candelabra and the table of showbread. Behind the curtain in the little room was the most holy place. Now, Jesus isn't in the earthly t- tabernacle or temple. He's in the heavenly one. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place. That's where God dwells. So he enters into God's presence. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So how can an unholy people come to God in covenant? By the blood of Jesus. Not by the good works you do, not by the finances you have, not by the social reputation you have, not by the the economic standards you live by, not by the past works of yourself or your parents, but by the blood of Jesus and only the blood of Jesus. And through that blood, the redemption price, the price to set you free is paid and Jesus stands in God's presence to intercede for us to put up his hand and say, hey, these are the guys that I actually died on the cross for. And we can come to God. We know for certain that that future vengeance that God will meter out is dealt with at the cross. And in this eternal covenant, God's word is written on our hearts. Jeremiah 33, 31 onwards, I think. It's written on our hearts, it's written on our minds by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you think about it, that means we have eternal joy because we are in that new covenant that will never pass away. And if you enter into a new covenant with God, you are filled with joy. But it's not just joy, it's exuberance and we're assuming here that Isaiah is speaking and whichever way you work it you come back to that conclusion that it's Isaiah the prophet he sees God's salvation he sees Messiah he sees the 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 new covenant and the salvation and he just erupts into spontaneous praise and joyful song have you ever had that in your quiet times that don't have to be quiet have you ever been so filled with joy that you just burst into song 
that you want to get up and dance and, and just praise God for who he is. This is what is happening to Isaiah. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, arrayed me in robes of righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now this is a beautiful passage. I delight greatly. The word greatly is not in the Hebrew script. It's in delighting, I delight. Infinitive absolute construct where by repeating the verb, you magnify it a millionfold. So it's not, oh, I'm pleased. It's not, I'm happy. It's, he's exuberant, he's bursting with joy, and he can't help but sing praises to God. I delight greatly in Yahweh. Now notice what Isaiah does. He's so filled with joy, he repeats himself, my soul rejoices. And so he's, he's so full of joy, he has to say it twice. And it's not just delight and rejoicing, it's in Yahweh. He's rejoicing in God. He, he's, he's filled with the joy of his God. And you start asking, well, well, why is that? And now he starts drawing it out. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness and, and they are deep terms that need some exploration garments of salvation think back to to verse one now as we as we have this list think about what these people wear think about the poor people and what they're wearing think about the captives in prison what they're wearing think about the prisoners what they're wearing and the mourners and of course those who are repentant in 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 the ashes sitting among the ashes poor people wear rags those in prison or those held captive wear whatever they had on and it often rots and begins to disintegrate. Captives were often led away butt naked into slavery. Mourners would put on sackcloth, they'd sit in the ashes and sprinkle ashes over their head. And you notice verse 1, 2 and 3 hint at what's coming up by talking about garments of praise. But in verse 10 we see that these old clothes are taken off and the garment of salvation is put on the robe of righteousness is wrapped around them and you you can't help but see the prodigal son kind of thing happening here you know, the, the son leaves home in in a, a rather negative situation he's off with the gentiles he's he, he's gone as low as you can go he's working among the pigs pigs were the the epitome of unclean animals he's in the the pig farm in the sty feeding slop to these pigs He's probably covered in, in filth, he's miserable, he's down and out, and he thinks to himself, I'll go home, I'll be a servant in my father's house. And as he's travelling home, the father sees him in the distance. He kicks off all dignity, hitches up his robe, and he runs to the son, wraps his arms around him, and what does he say? Put the royal robe on him. Take off those stained, filthy, pig-ridden clothes. Put the royal robe on him. Put the signet ring, the ring of authority on his finger and let's celebrate and kill the fatted calf because the son who was dead has come alive and has come back to us. Messiah takes the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness and gives it to us to wear and that should cause us to, to be so filled with joy that we just burst into song. 
For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Through the work of Christ at Calvary, your sins are dealt with once and for all. Your unrighteousness is carried by Christ to the cross and it's dealt with. And the wrath of God is poured out not on you for your sin, not on me for my sin, but on Jesus as the perfect substitute. And Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me and to you. And so our record, if you think about it in terms of a court record, is not all of the crimes, but all of the righteousness of Christ written officially on that record. It's 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ has become for us our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption from God. You think about this fellow sitting in the chair. I can tell him absolutely with no lack of confidence that as he comes to Christ in repentance and faith, God chooses not to see my crimes but Jesus' righteousness. He chooses not to see my anger but Jesus' compassion. He chooses not to see my rebellion, but Jesus' obedience. He chooses not to see my anger, but Jesus' love. And I can encourage him that all the wounds can be healed. And as this chapter closes, Isaiah picks up on the Great Commission to all Nations. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so Adonai Yahweh, same as in verse 1, Adonai Yahweh will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Now that happens in several ways. It happens through Christ obviously and initially and ultimately dying on the cross for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And, and Christ dies for the sins of the world. He is raised to eternal life and anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But Jesus doesn't go to the African continent and die over there and be raised over there. He doesn't then go to Europe and die over there again. He doesn't then go uh, to the Asian continent and die there. Who is it that goes around to all the nations, bringing the righteousness of Christ? It's us. Those who receive the salvation of Messiah have a commission to make disciples of all nations. And as we go to the nations, as we go to Toowoomba, as we go to Queensland, as we go to Australia, as we go to the world, people will believe in Christ. And the righteousness of Christ will spring up through them. And they will become missionaries and that process will grow exponentially and the world will see Christ in all his righteousness. So in life we will meet all kinds of characters. Now as you come across some people, some will be unsavoury characters. Please don't think for one moment, something like, this guy doesn't need the gospel, or he or she will never believe in Jesus. Don't ever think there's no point in sharing Jesus because that's the worst thing we can do. How good is the good news we share with people? It's not just good news, it's actually the best news. Whatever situation they're in, 
They need the gospel of Christ. And you can expand the gospel. Don't just be shallow and say, Jesus loves you. Draw it out. Show them the Trinitarian God loves them. Show them how he loves them. Explain the good news to them. Talk to them about vengeance and favour of God, how they can avoid the vengeance of God and find God's blessing and favour and explain to them that in coming to Christ in repentance and faith, they will receive a new identity. Show them what it means to come to Christ through a new covenant, not the old covenant of the law. It's not about being good enough or keeping the law and then being saved. No, it's about a new covenant where Jesus does everything at the cross and we receive the spoils of victory and explain to them and show them in your life the joy of being in the Lord. But it's not just joy, it's exuberance. How good is the good news that we share with people. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the good news. We thank you that it is such a splendorous, many-coloured thing that we can open it up with people and share the depth of the, the love of our God, the Trinitarian God, with people in the world. Father, we pray we plead with you to give us opportunities every day to share the good news. Give us the courage, give us the words to reach out and talk to people about Jesus. Help us to explain to them how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit loves them. Help us, Lord, not to be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the good news for the salvation of everyone who believes. In Jesus we all say, Amen. Thank you.